0: So, God, open our eyes and our ears. God, open our hearts and our minds that we might hear and believe what you would say to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, it is uh, good to be back after having been away for a few weeks and uh, to be back in uh, the pulpit, not just listening to uh, sermons as wonderful as that was, uh, but also now being able to uh, preach a sermon again. And uh, one of the things that who uh, was kind of driven home to me? Uh, one of the things that when a, a pastor visits a church, it's very—at least for this pastor—it's very difficult just to kind of engage and be there. Constantly asking, uh, "Okay, if I was a, a, a someone who has not been to church before, would I understand what's going on? Uh, are the songs singable? Is the is the preaching accurate?" There's lots of kind of things going on in the back—at least in my mind. Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to worship God, and one of the things that uh, is always uh, made clear. One of the things we're striving to do is to, uh, is to make clear what we're doing and why we're doing uh, those things. And uh, that comes uh, especially uh, in light of our celebration of the ordinances of, of the church the last few weeks, as we've been able to both celebrate baptism as well as the Lord's Supper. And we want to be uh, clear about why we do those things. What do we believe uh, the water and the bread and the cup, what do these things signify? What do we believe about them? What do we not believe about those things? And even though every time we uh, have someone come for baptism, every time we, we we lay out the meal for God's people, we offer some brief words of explanation, sometimes we understand brief words are not enough. Uh, sometimes people do not simply uh, understand those brief words. They have more questions uh, than they do answers. Other times uh, people uh, just simply mishear what is said. Uh, other times they're not convinced by what is said. And so there is misunderstanding about what these things believe, and yet they are essential to us as a church. Uh, every church, I shouldn't say every, almost every uh, church from the beginning of uh, of its with Christ at Pentecost up until today, every branch and denomination uh a, 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 you know orthodox Catholic Protestant, and everything in between and around and gathered in have all believed about the essentialness of baptism, the Lord's Supper, even if we have sometimes disagreed on the details of what those things mean. So this is not just some uh, tradition. This is not just some religious practice. These things are vital to our life and faith. And so the question they want to ask this morning is simply this, uh, what do these things mean? Why do we do them? Why are they so important? Why do we do them together as a church? And quite honestly, what we have before us is enough material biblically to go for several weeks in a small series on these things, but we're going to do it in one shot this morning. Furthermore, uh, the difficulty that is here is that there is no one passage that explains everything there is to say about baptism or everything there is to say about the Lord's Supper. And so what we're going to do um, is is have really a topical message this morning. Rather than work through one central text, we're going to look at many, many different uh, texts throughout the sermon. And so that's why in your sermon notes, there's a lot of blank space and there's lots of uh, sermon uh, or rather uh, scripture quotations listed there. We list them there so you don't feel like you've got to be flipping everywhere and running around crazy and writing stuff down furiously, if that's how you learn best, then do that, all right? But if not, then just know you can go and look up every single one of those passages I'm going to mention, uh, unless God brings something fresh to mind, but all the ones that I have prepared to talk about there in your text. And so as we think about these things, uh, really what we want to see, if we can boil everything down, is how does our faith in Christ how does our faith in Christ relate to the ordinances of the church, to baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do these things bear witness to our faith in Christ? And so as we begin, we want to consider the witness of baptism, the witness of baptism. Physically, Christian baptism is pretty simple. It is immersion in water of a person who has put their faith in Christ. They go down into the water, they come back up out of the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the consistent pattern of the New Testament, the consistent pattern of church history. Specifically, because there are some that would baptize infants, and so that's where the issue of believer versus not believer comes into question. But when you look to the New Testament itself, you will never find an instance of someone who is not saying that they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, being baptized. Uh, The the natural pattern is hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then being baptized. So the question is, why is that the pattern? Why do we do that? Why uh, did God give this right to His people? Simply put, baptism is a sign of our salvation. It is a sign of our union with Christ, our life being united to His by faith. And so, what we see first of all is that baptism declares faith in Christ. It declares faith in Christ. So, for example, in Acts chapter two, after Peter—Peter, rather—preacher Peter Peter preached. uh, No, no, I won't go there. Uh, After Peter preaches a sermon. Uh, to several thousand Jews all gathered together, and many of them believe. Luke says this So those who received his word, that means they received it, they believed it, they accepted it, those who received his word were baptized. And at, there was added that day about 3,000 souls. That's kind of the. The, the envy of every preacher to be able to preach a message that results in 3,000 people believing and being baptized but then again in acts 8 the people believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized and again in Luke 8 or excuse me acts 18 Luke tells us that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized are you sensing a pattern here this is the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament. And sometimes uh, various bits are, are left off simply because uh, Luke, for stylistic reasons, has just kind of given us the summary. But what we see over and over again is the preaching of the gospel. Some here believe the gospel, put their faith in Christ, and the result is then that they are baptized. Okay, As normal practice, no one was saved in Christ who was not baptized, and only those who believed were baptized. And so as Bobby Jameson, one pastor, has recently written, baptism is where faith goes public. It's where faith goes public. When we come to believe that salvation is found in Christ alone, that we indeed are in need of salvation, that we are sinners separated, cut off from God, that that we do not live in a relationship with God. We don't know Him as we should. He does not know us as He should and we look to Christ to solve that problem, to be the remedy that we need for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life fellowship with God, then the result is that we declare that faith publicly through baptism. Now, the last few decades, especially, you could probably push that back maybe even to a uh, hundred years, but certainly in the last few decades, it's been very popular to talk about uh, a public profession of faith that then leads to baptism, So the way we profess our faith is by either walking to the front of the church at the end of a service or by raising our hand at a a camp meeting or or, or, or in some kind of a public preaching event. Um, Some even say signing a card and leaving it in the uh, offering as it comes by. Those things are our public profession of faith that lead to our baptism. But that's foreign to the New Testament. Completely foreign to the New Testament. Baptism is our public profession of faith when it comes to what the teaching and practice of the church was in the New Testament. Now, it doesn't mean that they're simultaneous. It doesn't mean that there may not be an extended period of time but, but between someone saying, I, I think I'm a Christian. I, I put my faith in Christ today, and when they're baptized. But what it means is, according to the New Testament, no one was considered a Christian until they were baptized. That is how they declared to God, His angels, the watching world and the church, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a visible picture of one's turn away from sin to Christ. It is a symbolic way of saying, I renounce my former life, I repent of my sins and I trust in Christ alone for salvation. Now, why did baptism come to have that kind of prominent role? Where did it come from? Why did they have this idea to even do that? Very simply, it came from Jesus himself. When I mean, you read the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, and he says that you who have trusted in me, you disciples, are to go and make more disciples. And part of that is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Jesus Christ. So the reason why the apostles and the church took baptism so seriously was because Jesus commanded it. It wasn't just like, oh, here's a cool thing. Let's just come up with something that, you know, uh, we couldn't do the secret handshake and that's no good, you know, because people will forget and mess it up and then it'll be all messy. Or we can have everybody wear a certain kind of clothes that like gets expensive. Oh, we'll come up with baptism. That, that seems obvious. No. Jesus said after, a, 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 we don't have time to go into it, but after a very long line of, of, of symbolic baptisms during all of the New Testament... From, from Noah all the way down through the Exodus, uh, to, to Naaman, a pagan king, uh, uh, being healed through, going through water, that there is this symbol of experiencing and being rescued from God's judgment through the passing of water. And so Jesus said all of these things in the Old Testament that dealt with this kind of salvation from judgment through water is pointing forward to this, that my disciples are going to declare that they are my disciples. They're going to show the world and the church that they belong to me by being baptized or being immersed in water and coming back up. Thus, baptism plays such an important role because it signifies salvation in Christ. It signifies salvation in Christ. Now, if we're in the, con- you know, if, if I meet you for the first time and, 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 and uh, you know, for whatever reason I'm wearing a, you know, maybe the, the, the team who didn't win, uh, you know, and we're commiserating about how terrible it was, or maybe I'm wearing the team who did win yesterday and, you're, and we're celebrating about the, the amazing victory, uh, you know, but I've got my hands in my pocket and we're talking and, and the conversation gets going and you say, you know, are you married? Do you have a family? And I say, oh yeah, I'm married. And I hold my ring up. Now in that moment, that's really all the evidence you need, Right? I mean, who wears a wedding ring, normally anyway, who's not married? But is that all that there is to marriage? If that was true, I would not be married for very long. Uh, there is lot, there's a lot more to, to a good marriage, to a healthy marriage, than just wearing a ring. There is love and commitment and intimacy in marriage. There is the understanding that I am seeking to fulfill all of the promises I made on my wedding day. Promises of fidelity and sacrifice and so much more. But, but all of that is understood by simply saying, I'm married. And visibly displaying what the pastor and our Ceremony said was a token of our love and affection and commitment to one another, placing the ring on the finger. It was a sign that we are committing one another to one another in our lives. And likewise, it's very much how the New Testament treats baptism. When you look at the whole Bible, it's clear that anyone who is saved is saved because they come to believe in the promises of God. Now that Christ has come, it is those promises about Him that we call the gospel that it is only through Him that we can find forgiveness in life and salvation with God. There is nothing that we do, there's no kind of work that would earn God's forgiveness. It's not like, you know, we could uh, uh, live a really good life and at the end God says, sure, come in, You, you, you deserve heaven. Nobody deserves heaven. Nobody deserves heaven. The Bible is consistent from beginning to end that any salvation that comes to us comes by God's grace. It's a gift that we don't earn. Nevertheless, when the apostles speak of our salvation in Christ, they often just talk about our baptism because it is so closely associated with salvation. Remember we said everyone who believed was baptized and because of the visible picture of baptism, they can talk about baptism as if that's our salvation. Just like their wedding ring can be talked about as if it's marriage. So consider some passages. from The first from Romans 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if we're saved by grace, someone might ask the question, well, then does it matter how we live. Can we, can't we just do whatever we want? We're going to be saved. Can, can, you know, can we just sin and God will keep forgiving us over and over again? And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what the Christian life is about. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Did baptism physically save us? No. But it represented our union with Christ, our life being united to his. Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul even says there, look, where we have faith in Christ, our lives are united to Him. How do we know? Because we've been baptized into Him. Colossians 2, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So all of those verses, all of those phrases are describing, once again, our union with Christ. That is the Spirit of God uniting our lives to the life of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. When we trust in Jesus, then the Spirit takes our life and and unites it to Christ spiritually. So when Christ died on the cross under God's judgment, it was not just, in fact, it wasn't for him. It was for me now. His death is my death on the cross. His burial As the result of the curse of sin becomes my burial. I was in the grave with him spiritually. And gloriously, his resurrection, his coming out of the grave, triumphant over sin and death, is now my resurrection as well. Both now as I have forgiveness and freedom from sin, but as I look forward to the day when Christ returns and the grave won't hold me. This old, worn out, worm-ridden body will be renewed, restored, and be alive again. That's what baptism pictures, a cleansing, a washing away as we go into the water of our sins because we've been united to Christ. Again, baptism doesn't save you. The water itself doesn't cleanse your soul. I mean, how would that actually even work? It doesn't. The water doesn't wash away your sins. The Spirit of God, by the Word of God, cleanses your soul and washes away your sins through faith in Christ. But baptism pictures that work baptism pictures that saving work of God. Several years ago, I was reading about a prominent businessman who had encountered some Christians, began a friendship with them. And uh, ultimately he heard the gospel and he believed. And uh, when it came time for him to undergo baptism, he wore his nicest, most expensive suit. And he showed up, he says, okay, I'm ready. Like, well, uh, you should probably change your clothes. He's like, why? He said, because you're, you're going to get that suit ruined. I mean, how much does that thing cost? A couple hundred dollars? He says, several hundred dollars. He says, well, you change out of it. You're going to ruin the suit. He goes, oh no, you don't understand. I, I want to ruin the suit. That's why I'm wearing it today. This suit represents everything that I have lived for up until my faith in Christ struggle for money and for, for power, for, for financial security and for, uh, for, for promise in the community. All of that is represented in this power suit. And so I know when I go into that water, the suit's going to be destroyed, just like my old life is going to be destroyed now in Christ. I don't live for those things anymore. I live for Him. I, I, I follow Him in obedience and faith and joy and in love because He gave Himself for me. The same is true for all of us. We may not have the old suit to wear into the water. Nevertheless, the picture is the same. When we go into that water and emerge, it represents our new life in Christ. When we have been plunged into his death and resurrection and emerge a new creation in him, it is no longer our old selves, but a new life lived by faith in him. And part of that new life is that we no longer live in isolation. We're not just living for ourselves selfishly, even if we're not aware of it, but rather now we live with and for others. And so this is the third truth that we see about baptism. It identifies us with the people of Christ. It identifies with the people of Christ. Though everyone who is saved must exercise personal faith in Jesus, our personal faith is never private. Private. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle picks up the language of the Old Testament, Israel, that the, the covenant people of God, and he applies to the New Testament church. So everything that describes Israel in the Old Testament, he now says describes those who have faith in Christ. He's writing to Christians and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's the key. Once you were not a people. Well, once you, you, especially you Gentiles, you're just scattered around. You live in this country, in that country, in this country over here. You worshiped all kinds of false gods and you had no connection to one another. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Peter is saying, look, when you got saved, yes, you put faith in Christ. It wasn't your parents. It wasn't a friend. Nobody else got you saved. You trusted the gospel. But when you trust the gospel, you were brought into something much larger than yourself. It's not just me and God and no one else. You have a big problem today with politicians who want to say, oh, yeah, I have faith but my faith is private, my faith is personal. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible never teaches that, just the opposite. The Bible says that we submit to one another, that we teach one another, that we love one another, that we pray to one another, we confess our sins to one another, not a priest, one another, other people in the church, that we are to live out 27 different commands that involve the phrase one another. That's not private. might be personal, but it's never private. It's public, it's communal. So the church is described sometimes as a faith family. Paul will describe the church as the body of Christ and us as individual members of it. Some of us, in other words, might be a thumb or a pinky or an eyebrow or an ear, but guess what? We're all part of the same body working together. Some of you are smelling lunch and you're the stomach right now. (laughs) Baptism is the way in which we identify with the people of God and show that we are part of it. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that it was in one spirit that we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Again, in Ephesians, Paul will say there is one body. It's only one group, there's only one family called the church, God's people. In fact, in the argument of Ephesians up to this point, he's saying there's been Jews, there's been Greeks, but guess what? God is now creating a new humanity, a new kind of person called Christian. And he's done it through Christ. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Because baptism represents a larger work of God in salvation, it does so in the context of God's covenant community, that the community which he has promised himself to. Believers are baptized by the church into the church. And so baptism was seen as the kind of initiation rite, which shows we are now partakers of the new covenant in Christ. We are part of his people, separated from the world, but now belonging to God. So in the New Testament, no one was considered part of the of God's people, part of the church until they identified with Christ in baptism. And that makes big, honestly, begins to make more sense in the world today than I think it ever has in the past for many of us. Because today in our culture, the United States is becoming increasingly unpopular to become a Christian. So now when you're baptized, it means something. I mean, can you imagine telling your you know, completely secular, agnostic, if not atheistic, friends or coworkers. Yeah, this past Sunday, I came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. That This Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago was not just a Jewish man. He was actually the Son of God. He was not just a religious teacher or a great moralist. He was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And that apart from Him, I can never be right with God because I've sinned against Him. I'm an idolater. I worship all kinds of false gods. You do too. You, you know how we worship money in this place and how do we strive for it? And we make that the, 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 the one thing that we pursue, but I'm done with that. I'm not loving and worshiping money anymore. Now I'm worshiping Jesus. And this past Sunday, I demonstrated that, that belief in him, that worship of him by being baptized. They, they put me in water and they brought me out and it showed that God cleansed me of my, all of my sins. But now I'm dead to that old life and I'm a new person in Christ, so things are going to be different around here. I'm not going to talk about the same old things. I'm not going to listen to the same old jokes. Can you imagine what that sounds like to somebody? I mean, they want to call the people in white coats in the padded van. This guy's crazy. But being baptized, publicly identifying with the church actually means something. But think about how much more it means in other parts of the world as well. When I was in India back in July. Uh, it, it occurred to me towards the end of the week of, of training all these pastors and how to preach through the gospel of Mark and John uh, as I was getting to know their names that, that their first name all had in it the name of a false god. All, you know, there's millions of gods in Hinduism and all of them, almost all, every single one had the name of one of those false gods. And now they've renounced that god. They no longer worship that god. They worship Jesus. Okay, and you, you know what's happened? Some of them have lost family members. They've not seen mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers because they've belonged to a different people now. They're not even considered Indian. They're not considered Hindu. Now they are part of the Christian people. Why? How did that happen? It was through their baptism and the witness of that to the watching world. So as we think about, what do we do with all this? There are two obvious implications, at least. First, If you've not done it before, hear the gospel and believe. Become a Christian. Uh, uh, Understand what the Bible teaches that all of us, not just you down there and everybody up here is okay. No, all of us across the board have no hope of salvation, have no hope of anything pleasant in the world to come after we die unless we've trusted in Christ because we deserve God's wrath. From birth we have been rebels against God. Doesn't matter how well of a li- how good of a life we think we've lived, we have fallen short of God's glory. But God loved us and sent Christ to die for us to be the savior that we need to bring us to God. So this morning if if you've never trusted in him, trust in him. Believe Jesus to be your savior. But then second, if you believe and have not already, be baptized. This was the practice of the early church because it was commanded by Christ. This is what Christians for 2,000 years have done. In fact, even though they disagree about some of the meaning, only two groups in the last 2,000 years have said you don't need to be baptized, the Quakers and Salvation Army. Every Presbyterian, every Methodist, every Baptist, every Catholic has all said those who are part of God's people need to be baptized, to declare their faith publicly, just as Christ commanded. So if you are a Christian, if you have believed and you been baptized, it's time to be obedient to Christ. It, 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 it's time to, to, to not be like uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, secret naval ship in, in the war that won't put up the color flag that it is. And, and, and so nobody knows whose army is it a part of. No, raise the colors. Hoist your flag that says, I believe in Christ. I am part of his people. Baptism is important, but it's only one of the ordinances that bear witness to our faith. And so in our remaining time, we not only need to consider the witness of baptism, we need to also consider the witness of the Lord's Supper. The witness of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, we actually have quite a bit more help here in the sense that Paul gives us an amazing um, uh, compaction of truth about what the Lord's Supper means. So I'm actually going to read a, an extended part here. Um, so if you want to follow along, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 and following. If not, you can, you can just listen. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and perhaps you remember, maybe you don't know nothing about them, but it's a very large church, a very metropolitan city. Uh, you know, they were uh, kind of the, um, uh, what do you want to say? Very cosmopolitan, somewhat uh, vainglorious, almost, uh, it'd be misleading to say, but you almost want to say hipsterish kind of city. Uh, they just thought that the world revolved around Corinth. And the result was they were not very good Christians. They had lots of problems because they had a difficult time separating their lifestyle and the lifestyle of the city around them and and what Christ called them to live. So Paul writes in this first letter especially and is really just excoriating them. He is thankful for their faith. He says, you are immature. And here are things that you need to remember what I've taught you and to begin taking action and changing your life. And one of them was the Lord's Supper. And you're gonna hear Paul actually says, I wish you weren't taking the Lord's Supper because you're terrible and your life betrays its meaning. Here's what he says. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So what is the Lord's Supper all about? What role does it serve? Well, first of all, Paul makes really clear it's about remembering the gospel of Christ. It's about remembering the gospel of Christ. That's what the supper does. It remembers. Paul quotes Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. And we remember from the Old Testament context, right? Jesus was a Jew and the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations. And the Old Testament remembering was not just like sitting in a hammock thinking, ah, oh, I remember those glory days of That That wasn't it at all. Um, It was much more than that. Sometimes memory was active. You would have people that would uh, build piles of rocks or they would continue to eat the Passover feast. These things were to remember the saving acts of God and live differently because of them. That's what remembering meant for the Jews. And Jesus intends the same thing to be happening. The meal is not simply remembering Jesus as a person. It's remembering Him and what He did for us, of the salvation that He has brought through His death and resurrection. That's why He talks about the body and the blood of Christ. When Christians gather together at the table, we remember Jesus' work for us. Again, this means that eating and drinking at the table does not bring salvation. Just like baptism, there's no saving activity going on when you eat and drink at this table. Rather, Christ is the one who saves. So you can come here week after week after week and you can eat this bread and you can drink this cup and you can still be condemned to hell forever because of your sins. Why? Because the meal doesn't save. Christ saves. And the meal reminds us of him and his saving work. The meal reminds us of the offering of His life for us. We, we, we break that bread from one loaf. First of all, because, it, because we are one loaf. We are one body in Him. But we break that bread to remember Christ's body broken for us on the cross. We pour out the cup, remembering of Christ's blood being poured out for us on the cross. He was a sacrifice on our behalf, satisfying God's just anger to our sin, making atonement that brings us peace with God. When you think about just that for a second, isn't that kind of a shocking thing for us to have to have? For God to say, I'm going to give you this meal and you do it all the time because you need to remember. Now, there's a part of us say, well, come on, God. I mean, Jesus died for me. I mean, the son of God, the man of eternal glory by whom all things were created. I mean, he, he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He came and he suffered and he bled and he died. And he lived among stinky humans for 30-some for, for years. All of a sudden, he'll be offered up as a sacrifice, be killed for sins that he didn't commit. How can I forget that? But we forget all the time. Or else our lives look a whole lot different. That, that salvation that is freely given to us ought to have a transformative effect on how we live our lives but we often forget the gospel. We forget Christ. We forget God who is our God and we start to worship other things. And we start to turn inward and selfish and think about what's convenient and easy and what's, and what's best for me rather than how can I show love to the people of Christ? How can I show love for God by loving his people? And so God says, I'm giving you a meal to remind you, to, to, to help you see over and over again what my son did for you. But the table isn't just there to help us remember. It's also there to help us proclaim. The table proclaims our faith in Christ. The table proclaims our faith in Christ. That's the second thing that we need to take note about the table. Notice again what Paul says. When Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we take of that bread and we eat, every time we take of that cup and we drink, we are saying, I believe. I believe. When you eat the bread, you're saying, I believe that Jesus died for me. When you drink the cup, you're saying, I believe that Jesus died for me. That's why we say, if you don't believe that, don't eat and drink. You know, it's not going to do you any good. It doesn't save you. It says, I'm already saved. And I want you to know it. I want the people sitting over there to know it. I want the people sitting in the back to know it. I want the pastor in the front. I want the deacons who give. I want everybody to know I'm a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, you don't eat and drink. Because you are not in a position to proclaim the Lord's death. I, I, you know, the Christian church is not just about faith as an abstract thing. If you see stuff on Facebook, you talk to people all the time. They say, well, I'm a very spiritual person, I have faith. Okay, faith in what? What, what do you believe in? Faith in who? Usually it's themselves. And some kind of force that's bigger than them that's going to help them out in their life. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity says our faith is made manifest in a person, Jesus. And therefore, He is the object of our faith. It's always about Him and what He does, not us and what we do, or some vague divine grandfather who's giving us gifts from heaven. When we partake of the table, we are preaching the gospel to those around us. And so just as baptism is the kind of, the, the, the kind of first evidence of our faith bringing us into the church, and declaring it to those around, so the Lord's Supper acts as a declaration of our ongoing profession of faith. We're declaring the good news of salvation and our faith in that news. And that's why, just in part at least, just as baptism brings us into the people of God, showing the communal nature of faith, so the Lord's Supper also shows our faith in the context of God's community. This is the third thing that we need to see, that the Lord's Supper is celebrated by the people of Christ. Lord's Supper is celebrated by the people of Christ. Many, many years ago, I was on a television show, a local show called Ask the Pastor. People would either email questions in or they would write questions in. And someone had a question about the Lord's Supper. And don't forget this other guy uh, who was on the panel with me, supposedly a pastor, though he had designated himself an apostle. So Apostle Jones or whatever it was. And he, he, and so they asked the question about the Lord's Supper and he goes right off the gate talking about how the Lord's Supper was important and I hope you think it's important and I hope you're doing it at home with your families and your kids. And I thought, what are you talking about, dude? What in the world are you talking about? And someone, the host said, someone else. And I said, yeah, we got to straighten this thing out. And how do you do that politely on air without saying you're a nutter, dude? Uh, that, that's difficult, frankly. It's part of the reason why I'm not on that show anymore, but, um, uh, That's not what it's about. You know, I mean, to be honest, I'll just make a confession here. Something that that I regret, it was nice in the moment, felt very spiritual. But one of the things I regret, the only thing I regret about our wedding day is the fact that we asked the pastor to give us the Lord's Supper as part of the service. For us, it was a way of declaring our faith to our family, but it stands now looking at it and understanding it, it stands completely contrary to everything in the New Testament. Never should have done that. The pastor shouldn't have let us do it. It's just a no, it is a church ordinance. It is for the gathering of God's people, not just at a wedding ceremony, not at some camp, not at some, uh, you know, uh, Christian fellowship of athletes thing. That's not what it's about. Say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, first of all, because Jesus told us so when he gave it to us. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That doesn't mean it's going to save us. A covenant is a promise between God and people. And Jesus is saying that this this supper is given to us in the context of a covenant relationship. It goes back again to what Peter said, right? We are part of the people of God now. God is faithful to His promises, and we are saying every time we drink that cup and we eat that bread, I will be faithful to my promises, God, because I love you and the Son that you sent for me. So if you're not going to be faithful to His promises, don't eat and drink. Don't eat and drink. Second, notice all of Paul's concerns in 1 Corinthians 11. Notice, notice why he condemns the Corinthians. He says, I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. Why? Well, what's, what's wrong, Paul? Verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. So Paul says you're supposed to be coming together as a church to partake of the table and you're divided you got people over here that want to do this thing. you got people over here that want to do this thing. And these people think they're better than somebody else. And it's rather than being united in love, you're all divided. He says, there's factions among you. More than that, he says, when you come together, it's not even the supper that you eat. I can't even call it the Lord's Supper. In eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. He says, do you really despise the church of God that much? Do you really want to humiliate those that have nothing? He says, what shall I say? I have nothing good to say about any of this. Do you see what Paul says here? There is a reason why when we pass the trays, you don't just immediately eat the bed and drink your cup and pass it along. Even if it's symbolic, it is saying we love one another enough that we're all going to partake together because we are together in Christ. Therefore, we wait for one another. And we don't rush in and, and have our whole meal and, and are, are taking so long eating and drinking that we get completely blitzed on the, on the cup. It would be very hard here with all the grape juice we serve, but we don't get blitzed here by drinking of the cup and then somebody in the back, they don't have anything. The only thing they've had to eat all day is that little morsel of bread and drink from the cup that's come. You see what Paul is saying here? It's not individual sins. He doesn't say you're immoral and you've done that and you're a liar. He says you don't love each other as the body of Christ. You're not unified as the body of Christ. What is he implicitly saying? The meal is for the body of Christ. The meal is for the gathering of God's people as a church. And so if we back up into 1 Corinthians 10, just one chapter before, Paul talks about in the bread and the cup, we are participating together in Christ. It's a word that we translate elsewhere as fellowship. Once again, it's not about me as an individual saying... I'm going to drink this. I'm going to eat this. In fact, what does he say later? What does, what does he say later in the text? He says, let a person examine himself and so eat and drink of the bread and the cup. Now, I'll be honest. When I was a kid, I heard that preached as if, how was your life this past week? How was your life the past month or in the church growing up at the last quarter? I mean, I have a hard time believing now. There's that long we took Lord's Supper, but um, what was your life like? Have you been living faithful for Christ? And it's like, oh man, no. I, you know, And it's just like this intense, like almost, you know, just sweat pouring. I got to pray. I gotta get That's not what Paul, read the next verse. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. What body is he talking about? The body of Christ, the church. So Paul's whole point is to say this represents not just our union with Christ, but our communion with Him and with one another. The meal is for those that are part of God's church. So this is why, you know, some of you may hear and say, well, I don't get it, I don't understand. This is why we say, don't partake of this table unless you've been baptized and you are a member in good standing at a church. Because that seems to be the very natural, obvious qualifications that the New Testament itself gives when it comes to participating in the Lord's Supper. It's not just me. It's about the body of Christ, about the church. And so the question is, and that's why a long time ago, and we don't say it every time, but we institute the policy of saying, if you are going to take and you're going to repent and think about how is your life with this body? Have you only been here once in the last 10 weeks? Guess what? You're not unified with the body of Christ. You have something really angry with the person across the way, and you're just thinking, man, I can't stand that guy. I'm not talking to him today. If he talks to me, I'm looking the other way. That's not unified and loving. Go take care of that or else you are profaning what Christ did on the cross. He demonstrated love that we might love one another. He said that people will know you are my disciples if you love one another the way that I have loved you. That should be demonstrated and reflected in our daily, weekly, monthly, yearly life as the people of God. And therefore, when we come to the table, it's a celebration celebration when we think about all the people around us that our lives are united to, all the people that we love and, and love us and that we serve together, the gospel of Christ in this place and around the world with, and if that's not who we are, then, then like Paul, we, we can't say anything good about our time together at the table. The, the, the table itself no longer becomes the Lord tables, the Lord's table, but something that we should repent of. So the implications once again, Those who come to the table are believers. Otherwise, how can you proclaim the faith that's being demonstrated in the symbol? And second, you have to be rightly related to the body. So one of the reasons, once again, we talk about church discipline. One of the things we take away when someone is disciplined by the church is fellowship at the table. Because their sin has been open and public against Christ and against his church. And therefore, there's no place for that person to come or if you're being disciplined someone else in another church, you think, well, rather than deal with that, I'm just out of there, and you show up here thinking everything will be fine because they don't know. That's what we say don't, don't take the, the cup and the bread. You are in disfellowship, disharmony. You're divided from God's people. Go and make things right. Repent if you have to, or ask them to repent if they need to. But then come to the table. So if you miss it once a month, if you miss it two months, guess what? Nothing's going to happen. God's not going to throw lightning bolts down at you and say, you didn't take the cup and the bread. Not going to happen. But you know what? If you show up to this table and you take it inappropriately, you will drink judgment upon yourself. That's exactly what Paul says. He says there were some people in Corinth that were sick and dying because they lived this way and they still came to the table. What's the point? The point is, the point is, understand the purpose of these signs and these symbols and these ordinances that God has given to us. They are meant to encourage us. That They are meant to be a witness to our faith and the work that God has done in our lives. But if we tinker with them, if we just take it on our own terms, if we do not, if we do not celebrate them the way that God says, then they lose the function for which they were given. And we make a mockery of Christ in the gospel. So this morning, Consider the gospel. Consider Christ's death for sinners, his resurrection for their being made right with God. Believe in that gospel and display your faith publicly through baptism. And then being rightly brought into the church and in a loving relationship with them, continue to affirm your faith and your communion with one another in Christ by eating and drinking from the cup. Father, we're so thankful for the work that you've done for us through your son. Words fail us in the response that we should have of gratitude and love. Father, we pray that our faithfulness to your word, our thoughtfulness about how we ought to live and serve and minister as your people would be evidence of our thankfulness and our love because of what Christ has done. Father, we pray that we would think on these things, that we would would seek to uh, understand them, but more than that, God, that we would seek to obey what your word says out of love for you and the love that you have shown us in your Son. It's in his name that we pray, amen.